Hello and welcome to Plant Pals, my podcast where I talk to my pals about plants. I'm your host, Mike. My pal this week is Al Sullivan. She's a botanist who just finished up her master's degree and landed a fancy new job. So we're going to talk about all that, and we also talk about Lord of the Rings for a really long time in the middle. Here we go. I didn't actually ever introduce myself. Did you really not? <laughs> no, we like talked about it beforehand, so I guess I could start uh, okay. with introducing myself. Yeah. For real this time. However you want. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do I start? <laughs> Non-affiliated government employee grad degree having part two electric boogaloo. <laughs> I like that. And what is your name? Um... My name is Alexis, but I go by Al uh, Sullivan, and some people know me on the internet as Carrot Warrior. Um, yeah. Sweet. <laughs> I'm a non-affiliated government employee. Yeah, as of today. <laughs> as of today. So, yeah, I guess I, so my background, because I didn't give that last time either. Um, oh, also, people I have, have no idea what we're referring to. We recorded an episode the day you graduated from grad school, and then my hard drive yes. tanked, like, blue-screened and ate my end of the audio, so I have yours. Maybe I could do, like, a Patreon someday, and I just act out what I think I said in regards to what you're saying. <laughs> I I think that would actually be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> for, like, I'd us, that we would fucking listen to that. We'd, we'd go bananas. Yeah, I'd pay for that. Or, like, we could write... Um, I don't know. Just make it sound even worse than it was because it was pretty unhinged, anyways. I'll so. have Chat GPT fill in my end of it. That would actually be amazing. And then I'll put it um, in that software I use to make JFK do my intro. <laughs> so it's my <laughs> voice too. <laughs> I really hope you actually do that. Oh I didn't God. realize you had my audio and you lost yours. Yeah, so. that's why I was like yeah. so fucking pissed about it because it was all my fault. <laughs> For a second, I was like, Mike's lying, and he just didn't like my podcast episode. <laughs> no, this is like, I don't know what I'm doing. I am not a, I'm a Luddite. I bought my first Mac a year ago on a whim, and this is a 10-year-old refurbished fucking Air MacBook or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're my third. That... Yeah, you turned yeah, on your computer I... for the first time in how many months for this? <laughs> like three months, I think, yeah. Hell yeah. Um yeah, you're my third redo, and hopefully, well, third? Yeah, oh. and hopefully last. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, my, my background. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, I have a bachelor's degree in botany and plant ecology, um, where I also minored in geospatial analysis, so I like maps, from Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Go Webers. One of the... Yes, we are the Wildcats. Um, we were one of the only botany programs in the U.S., so that was exciting. Wow, really? Um, yeah, I, I've heard. I don't know if this is correct. That's But I've heard there's only two true botany, like two undergrad programs that are called botany, but I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know why um, I just jumped to grad school in my brain. But even then, that's Yeah, no, no. So, 
a lot of programs are just called plant biology, but we're botany and plant ecology. Mm. And they tried to change it to plant biology, and there was a whole uproar between all of the students. So, um, anyways, I have a botany degree. And then I also now have a master's degree in biology, because they didn't let me have the plant biology one. But I have a master's degree in biology from Washington State University, and I studied arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi and uh, a rare and endangered prairie system. And yeah, so I guess my master's is in like soil ecology. Yeah, from what something. I can re- glean from the last time you were looking <laughs> yeah. at like, was it you were looking kind of at, this is going to be me trying to explain your thesis to you. <laughs> Please do. Um, was it you were looking at like why arbuscular interactions are arbuscular mycorrhizae interactions make grasslands the way they are instead of like um, kind of why do why do certain assemblages happen in communities rather than like why is it shrubland or something? I wish I studied that, but no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn it! I studied uh, I studied arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. I'm not going to say that again. It's just am fungi. Aim. Um. AM fungi, AMF. I studied them in context of invasive plant species and restoration of native habitats. That's fine. So, way more important and relevant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so really, I guess it was like it was very restoration ecology was my was my master's program. Mm-hmm. I guess was just restoration ecology. So yeah, and I studied um, the Palouse Prairie ecosystem which is in you know i'll give you a whole spiel about that later but anyways <laughs> that's what i studied how to make invisible fungi make things nice again <laughs> sullivan et al 2022 <laughs> if there was like a drunk history episode about it that's what it would be titled i'm sure <laughs> drunk botany that'd be fucking fantastic um, I told you that last time that I want to do a podcast where I just get botanists drunk and have them talk about their favorite plants and research. Oh yeah, I mean, shit, this is this. I'm, I have. I'm, I know, but that's what you do. I'm twenty seventy five percent on this Modelo pyramid tall boy thing. I have my little oh, my glass of wine. Modelo. I'd get a tummy ache. Um, I haven't eaten today, but I've been drinking uh, plenty of fluids, so I'm chilling. You need the carbs. Yeah, exactly. But. <laughs> Um, yeah, so last time we chatted in the chat GBT, whatever the fuck it's called, world, uh, but the podcast that doesn't exist, um, I had just officially graduated that day. Mm-hmm. Congratulations again. That was, thank you. Um, that was in December. And then in the meantime, I've submitted a manuscript for publication. Um, and I've been a huge ski bum. That's it. Hell Yeah. <laughs> So, if anyone wants to go to grad school, I highly recommend taking a huge break before and after, because I didn't take one before, and I regretted that, but the break after was amazing. So, it was only like four months. But, anyways. (laughs) So, you mentioned the Palouse. Yes. You have a whole spiel. (laughs) What is that word you have just said to me? I don't know anything. The Palouse? Yes. Or this is, Spiel? This is my first time hearing the Spiel. <laughs> wink, wink. 
The Palouse Prairie. Um, I am obsessed with the Palouse Prairie, and it I, there's still so many like photos I need to share of all the cool ecosystems and landscapes. But the Palouse Prairie is a prairie system in eastern Washington and northern Idaho um, that is considered, according to NOS et al. 1995 and a couple other reports, um, it's considered the most endangered ecosystem in North America. Um, Yes. So it's, you know, I'm going to have to like really, I haven't talked about this in forever, but um, so it's a grassland, as, as you can hopefully catch from the name prairie. But if you don't know, a prairie is a type of grassland. <laughs> um, and it, I don't actually recall, like, the original size. Um, but one of the reasons why it's so endangered is that there's less than 1% of native prairie remaining today. So by the 1900s, over 90% of the prairie had been converted to agricultural land. Um, so... It, it's drastically different than how it was historically. And historically, it wasn't actually... Um, there weren't any, like, specific tribes that lived in the Palouse. It was more of a meeting place of tribes. Um, so there were a lot of native first foods, like the camas lily or um, yellow bells. So, like, Fritillaria pudica and... Um, Kamasia, Quamish, um, and some other native plants. And so they would burn the grasslands in the spring um, or the fall to try to help keep the ponderosa pines from encroaching into the grassland system. So there are some pine savannas within the Palouse Prairie, but where most of the food grew was in the grasslands. So there were um, prescribed burns by the native people and they would come and gather food and hunt um, and switch out the seasons in which that they did that. And then they would, you know, take care of the land. Um, and then around the 1840s, people started settling out west and the Palouse was included in that settlement. Um, and so some farmers, you know, started converting the land to cropland from native prairie. So the Palouse... I didn't explain this, but one of the draws to the Palouse for people back in the 1800s and 1900s is that it's incredibly fertile soil. Um, So the soil is a lust-derived soil, and it has a high amount of phosphorus in it. Um, So this is, like, pretty... I'm trying to make sure this sounds cohesive because it's been so long since I've talked about this. <laughs> I know. But... Sorry to dredge up the, the entirety of December that you're like, oh my God, I've been doing this nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in December, I was like, I could just talk about it. No problem. But now my brain is off. I've been working like in a bike shop. Like I haven't oh, yeah. been doing anything to do with plants. <laughs> but um, yeah. So anyways, the soil is like the, mo- the best part, in my opinion, to the Palouse. Um, not necessarily the best part, but one of the most interesting parts, because the Palouse has this really long and rich geological history that has created this incredibly fertile soil where um, you don't need to have additional or supplemental irrigation for crops to grow. Really? And so, yes. Um, so it's the lentil capital of the world, but we grow lentils, garbanzo beans, um, canola oil, And you're uh, a legume scientist now. It's perfect. 
I am aware of science. <laughs> was it my? I was talking to my friend yesterday, and she was like, "If you ever study, or if you ever publish a paper on black beans and rhizobia, you should title it Creatures from the Black Legume.'" So when you said I work in the legume <laughs> lab, I thought you were like, "Oh, it's cool. You're doing like estuaries and stuff." Like I completely misheard you. <laughs> Not lagoons, legume. <laughs> Did you ever watch The Proud Family? Oh my god, yeah. Do you remember that movie they had where they go to, like, Dr. Legume's Island and he has these peanut people running around and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I literally forgot about that. Why do you remember that? I swear to god. I had to say it out loud because I'm like, was this a fever dream? Like, what the fuck was that? No. Because it's like, you know, this that was a suburban family and then the movie is like, they go to, like, Dr. Moreau for Disney. It was just like, what the hell? I will be That's you now. that evil Dr. Moreau with peanut people. <laughs> the creatures from the ba- Black Lagoon. Yeah. Ooh, fuck. Oh, that's the title. I'm going to write that down now. I always, I stress because I don't think about it until I'm like ready to publish and I'm looking for a title. I'm just like fast forwarding every 10 seconds to find something. That's it. Yeah. I mean, our our title last time could have been something about Jimmy Johns. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) Why did that come up? Did you work there or are you just a big fan? Uh, No, uh, I don't actually remember why we brought up Jimmy Johns. Oh, no, he's a big game hunter. Yeah, and he, like, killed one of the last white rhinos. Yeah. Um, I did actually work there as, like, a bike delivery person. Okay. At a, in a time of my life, but I don't know why we talked about it. And then you were Googling it, and you were like, holy shit, this guy yeah, hunts. I didn't know James John was that bad. <laughs> He's not a good dude. Yeah. Anyways. He's not a good dude. Anyways. Most derived so, soils. It is super lush. You don't need any irrigation. Yes. So, um... Let me paint a picture for you, okay? The Palouse, have you, you know the classic, I'm painting a picture for everyone. I feel like everybody knows the classic Windows XP or like the Windows screensaver of the rolling green hill Mm -hmm. with the blue sky. That's the Palouse. Everyone's saying, yeah, That photo was literally, yeah, yeah. yeah, That photo was literally taken in the Palouse, though. I thought it was like a vineyard in France. What the fuck, really? I don't know, that's what somebody told me, is that it was taken in the Palouse. And I believe it, because every day I was, like, driving to my field sites, and I would be like, holy shit. When people would be like, oh, you live in Washington, like, it must be so forestry, like, forested Uh and green and lush. And I was like, no, I live in the window screensaver. Um, (laughs) But I love it. I mean, now I live in the sagebrush steppe, and there's no trees where I live, so it's fine. Um, I do miss the trees. So... Yeah, okay, picture this. These rolling hills, there's no mountains for miles, and um, you come out and you just see all of this land that, as I'm sure is like a white settler, you are like, hell yeah, just I'm going to plant money so in your many beans. Yeah. <laughs> so many beans. So many beans. Um, and they did. And you know what? Actually, I fuck with lentils, though. I love lentils. Um... So they did, and it was, like, kind of this heyday of of agriculture between, like, the 1840s to the 1900s, and so 99% of the native prairies were converted. So one of the reasons why um, – so this is just an interesting pattern, and I'm, I'm not telling this in a cohesive story, but it doesn't matter. But if you look at where in the regions we produce the mo- most food are, and are some of the most um, agriculturally – prominent places in the world. Um, most of those places are in areas with high phosphorus soils, 
on on, on lost derived soils. And so oftentimes this pattern of like high phosphorus and loss essentially creates this like really nutrient, high nutrient dense um, soil. And then you mix that with it being a grassland and you get a mollysol. And a mollysol is the most fertile soil that you could grow on. And so the Palouse is primarily a mollysol and it was created by the Missoula floods um, over thousands of years, multiple times, I think it happened seven times, the Great Lake Missoula in Montana, which was a glacial lake that was blocked by an, a glacier dam, essentially, like a glacier ice dam. Um, every thousand, a couple thousand years, that ice dam would essentially melt. Lake Missoula would flood and come over into Idaho and Washington and then retreat. And then that happened seven times. And that created this area called the Scablands. Um, and if you look at like a satellite imagery of this, it, it looks, it looks like a scab essentially, but Mm -hmm. it's very cool. These floods happened Um, in like one, I mean, several times, but like one big cataclysmic event, right? Like it wasn't a general thing. It was like literally like biblical. Yeah. They were biblical floods that happened like seven times. Cool. Seven biblical floods. Wow. So, um, (laughs) exactly. Um, so anyway, so that happened and then there, you know, were east side of the cascade. So there was a ton of volcanic or volcanic eruptions. So there's a lot of basalt over there and basalt is a high calcium rich rock and parent material for soil. Um, and then there are a couple areas within the Palouse. So like, like I said, the Palouse are these rolling hills, but there are a couple random um, ridges or buttes throughout the Palouse, um, called Steptoe Butte, Kamiak Butte, uh, Paradise Ridge, and Moscow Mountain. Um, we're going to exclude Moscow Mountain. We're going to talk about Steptoe, Kamiak, and Paradise Ridge. Oh, and Smoot Hill. Smoot. So these... These ridges are in these buttes, like if you're looking out over the Palouse, you can just see them, like Steptoe is just kind of this giant, I don't know, round. Prominence. I don't, prominent. I'm trying to not be vulgar in my description. I, I mean, come on, but it's this. You know what I mean. <laughs> it's like a tit. It, yeah. <laughs> and then the rest are just like plateaus and buttes. Yeah. So. These buttes are super interesting because they have quartzite on them. So it goes like basalt and then quartzite and then this, or quartzite um, and then loss. And quartzite actually comes from the, the, the quartzite that's in the Palouse actually comes from the Rocky Mountains. And they're not really, from what I understand, I'm not a geologist, so people can correct me if I'm wrong. From what I understand, this quartzite came from the Idaho Batholith, which is like one of these crazy geological events that occurred and created a batholith and helped create the Rocky Mountains. So essentially, as the Rocky Mountains were pushing and moving, some quartzite somehow got into the Palouse. Okay. What's interesting is that the quartzite sits on top of the basalt, but quartzite is older than basalt. So oh. it's like, at one point, you know, quartzite existed, basalt came in, yeah, and it flipped. And then there's less. So... These areas with, like, the quartzite, these, like, rocky buttes and stuff, are typically where you can find the remnants, the prairie remnants still. Um, 
The other places you can find these prairie remnants are on things called eyebrows. So when you're driving through the Palouse, you see these rolling hills of canola oil and garbanzo beans. I have to let my dog out one second. <laughs> um, so you see these like rolling hills of canola oil, big bright yellow flowers, um, and garbanzo beans. And then within these hills, there's these cut cutouts um, on the side of them that they call eyebrows and they kind of look like eyebrows. Like you should, you should Google this, like eyebrows of the Palouse and see if that pulls anything up. But, <laughs> and Palouse is P-A-L-O-U-S-E. Okay. Actually, it's, so, it's a wonderful mix of like rolling hills and then like actual pictures of eyebrows. The history of eyebrows since the 1920s. Uh, Interesting. Oh, yeah. Now I'm looking at this. Is it so like that? The history of eyebrows. These like strange dark, like they look like they're dead spots in the middle of these like, like, so, no, like not even not rolling hills. Eyebrow. It looks like Nima Mounds times 10. Yeah. Uh, there are some of those there, but these hills are actually massive. It's just the scale of these photos don't look as big. Okay. Um,. Oh, they're the kind Waitsburg of like concave, Times. kind of half moon shaped sometimes. Yeah, the Waitsburg Times has a photo called Sunset Over the Eyebrow when I Googled this. That works pretty well. Um, the Waitsburg Times, if you're wondering, has really good recipes. <laughs> um, Ooh, so if yeah, you're really looking for a really nice dessert recipe, highly recommend the Waitsburg Times. But anyways, so... These eyebrows exist within the crops fields because basically they came in and they were like, we are going to plow everything that we could possibly plow. So my rule for finding native prairie remnants within the Palouse is that it has to be shallow, rocky, and steep soil because that's where a plow couldn't go. If it was too steep, it couldn't make it up. If it was too rocky, it would ruin the plow. If it was shallow, it would also ruin the plow. And in some of these areas where the remnants are, the soil really is only like 15 centimeters deep before you hit rock. So it's not deep at all because less is wind-blown soil. The other like cool geological thing about that is they actually don't know where the less came from. Like the wind-blown soil in the Palouse. Typically when you have wind-blown soil in a region, you can like pinpoint this soil came from this area. Um, they have They don't know where it came from. So... I love um, that shit. Like that, those like geological mysteries. It's like such a Titanic concept, and it like I don't know. It, it makes the like human part of my brain frustrated. But then like the monkey and lizards, like that's so wild. There's old gods. Like how did they get there? <laughs> the aliens with a tractor <laughs> dug it up out of the ocean and then airlifted it over into the Palouse. and then flipped the quartz so over have... itself. Yeah, and then flip. They were just, you know, like, if they were, like, making cookies, they were, like, folding in the chocolate mm. chips. So, <laughs> that's, the, that's the alien recipe for how to get really fertile soil. Um, so it still exists? And I'm like, I can't believe somebody wants me to be a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> the government. Um... So what are you saying? I was gonna <laughs> ask you if ask? <laughs> I was gonna ask if this so this soil is the same soil over these super th these thin layers over these rocky areas is still that super rich 
Lus? Mm-hmm. You say Lus? Yeah, L-O-E-S-S. I usually call it Loss, and everyone's like, it's Lus, and I'm like, whatever. I think I said Lus earlier on, I'm sure people are like, well, actually. Los. Um, so it's just... Now it's we have super, to figure out how to pronounce this. Super um, fertile soil that's just at a shallower depth than the lower, flatter areas where it could kind of accumulate from whatever wind event carried it from wherever it came yeah. from. Yeah. So Google says, windblown dust and silt blanket the land. This layer of fine mineral-rich material is called lus, but it doesn't say how to pronounce it. So, um, But there's a region in China called the Lus Plateau where um, a lot of agriculture is done like a lot of crops come from there and that actually that place is really interesting because that place is also very high phosphorus um and mineral rich you know soil so i what's interesting to me about this so all of this geological and soil history is really important because the geological history of a region really is what helps determine where plants are going to grow, right? Unless you're like an Ariagnum or an Astragalus, <laughs> that's just like, fuck yeah, I'm going to grow on some bizarre soil. Most plants, especially crops, are going to grow on very specific, nice, fertile soil. Um, so... The other thing that I like about the Palouse is like, so it has this interesting geological history where it was influenced by the floods from Great Lake Missoula, and it was influenced by the volcanic eruptions in the Cascades, and it's been influenced by the Rocky Mountains. And now it was also a meeting place. So not only was it a meeting place of like geological events of a very, you know, catalyst, catalytic like... I don't know, very violent, I guess, and rare geological events. It was also a meeting place of people. And when you go through the plants and look at the plant species and the ecosystems in the Palouse, you can kind of see it's also a meeting place of ecosystems. Like, it looks... There's some areas where I'm like, this looks exactly like the Great Basin, and this looks exactly like the Intermountain West and the Rockies, and this looks like a temperate rainforest in the Cascades. Because um, there are some areas on like the north-facing slopes or the east-facing slopes, like on Kamiak Butte, that are very moist and temperate, and there are lichens that aren't typically found within that region um, that are more, fo- more so found in like temperate areas in the Cascades. Um, and mosses that are usually found in the Cascades. And so it's very diverse. And I feel like when you look at the Palouse and you're just like, oh, it's just a bunch of wheat and it's just a bunch of legumes. Um, when you actually look at the native ecosystem, you can see how diverse it is and how interesting it is. And I feel like it tells a story of where, how it was used in the past and how it developed and how it became the way it was. So... That's really cool. So it's That's my a, it's a focal point in, in, in every regard. It's geological, ecological, anthropological. Like for whatever reason, things just accumulate here. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that. Are there any cryptids That's associated? I have to ask because these kind of places of tend to be like thin places where the gobbledygooks <laughs> come over from the other side and do their thing. I don't know if there's any, like, Palouse-specific cryptids. I mean, in the Pacific Northwest, we obviously have Sasquatch. Of course. Of course. My so, town I live in really drives that point home. I don't think he was ever sighted here. That's, like, 
really? Yeah, because it's redwoods, so they're like, oh yeah, uh, Bigfoot's here. And there's a Bigfoot museum up the street, which I still need to go to. Um, I feel like that's like the tail end of Bigfoot's zone. Exactly. It's this is like the like habitat extreme like range delineation. Yeah. Like this is where it starts turning into like. Well, I don't know though, because I saw, I didn't see, I heard with my ears in this uh, convenience store down in like the Salinas Valley in the middle of nowhere. This guy was talking about how Bigfoot was throwing eggs at him out in the field, like his cattle country barn. Like it's just like rolling. You heard this man say this story? Yes, I did. He was behind the counter. I don't know how he got there because he wasn't working there. <laughs> I assumed he just was like an eccentric logo. I don't know. Um, but I ordered a, I was ordering a hot dog in the back. They had like one of those like grills, you know, like convenience store slash grill. It was like one of the old timey like yeah. uh, mercantiles. Yeah. And I was already running late for, I was meeting up with some friends like an hour south. And I was like, dude, any other, every, this is the only universe in which I am not actively acting, asking you questions right now. Cause like, I am so down to like go in on this. Cause he was like, oh yeah, you know, like, I don't think my mom would throw eggs at me. And like, I'm too far from the road for the kids to do it. So I think it must've been him like with a capital H. <laughs> it was, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I... That's actually bizarre. I don't actually know anyone here that is like 100% believes in Bigfoot. So, have you seen this? Yeah, we have. What? My Bigfoot tattoo. I can't see your oh, camera. Shit. I have a Bigfoot tattoo. I don't believe in him, but like, I, I love him. I love the, the folklore. I believe I love in him. him. <laughs> I, I love him. I have a sticker on my car that says, um, next to Dolly Parton. <laughs> Of course, my Dolly Parton sticker and my Bigfoot sticker, and it says Bigfoot stole my beer. I've been seeing a so. lot of Bigfoot ate my ass stickers lately. Oh, yeah. My friend has a hat that says yeah. Bigfoot is real, and he tried to eat my ass. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, Yeah, my friend has that hat. It's, I think it's pretty great. I think it's a pretty great hat, because it's like, it totally looks like a Bass Pro, like... <laughs> Women uh, want me, fish fear me kind of thing. Um, here in the, in the Tri-Cities in Richland, Washington, and the Columbia Basin, um, I don't know if, I don't know if we are, I feel like technically we're in the range of, like, the jackalope. Okay. I feel like that would be our cryptid. Yeah. So, but I don't hear anybody talk about that. But we have, we're in the ecosystem for the jackalope. We're in the sagebrush step. You know how they do the, so. um, there's, like, a flora of Middle Earth? Yeah, I have that. You do? I think we talked about this last time, too. God, we just... Yeah. <laughs> uh, Hold on. I think it would be so friggin' fun to do, like, a, an ecology of, like, United States cryptids. Because there's Yucca Man down in the deserts in California. Ooh, that's so cool. Are those the big... Um, I know. Those aren't... That's not, like, Laurelin and Telperion, is it? That's, like, the uh, the trees that elves lived in in Merkwood? Not Merkwood. No, it is. Greenwood. This is Merk... Well... No, Merkwood. Yeah. It was Greenwood, and then it got murky. Yeah. That's the trees. Sick. Um, this is dope, too, because it's two botanists that made this. This is a side note. I'm sorry. And they did the style of, like, the wood prints, the wood lithograph. Oh, that's so cool. And it's, Visual like, legitimately aids. a flora. Like, it's a real flora. And it talks about ecosystem and habitat descriptions. And it has, like, a true dichotomous key. I love really? this thing. Somebody gave this music. How can you even use that? I don't know, but I love it. And somebody gave this to me <laughs> as a gift. Real. 
I mean, there are some actually, like, he has this whole section of, like, comparison of trees of Middle-earth with those of England. Like, he talks about the plants in, like, their real world. But look at this cave. Oh, wow. That's legit. I turned to the peas. If you try to key beans. an end, that's assault. Is it, can you key an end? I don't think that... Yeah, I feel like that's a crime. <laughs> I, I would... That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like if you... I'm Now I'm looking to see if there is, like, an end note on here. But, like, if you try to key an end, would it get to its name? Like, a, like the individual? Yeah. I don't think so, because they're just species when they, you know, it's like there's a hawthorn ant, and then tree beards, I think, an oak, and then there's that one that runs in the water all distraught when it's on fire when they start attacking Isengard. Yeah, the willow. Yeah. Wait, I didn't know that hop, uh, tree beard is the, an oak. That makes sense. I just assumed. I don't remember. I think they just kind of... You know, somebody talk, Somebody was, like, talking shit the other day about Pippin... Because he was a pain in the and I was He was, like, like, 15 mentally in that movie. Yeah, I mean, he was 15. And, like, but the thing is, is he literally lived for, like, 20 years with the Ents and learned their language. He was, like, fully accepted by that species. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about those books. It's, like, all of these things that happen in three and a half minutes in the movie take literally, like, when... A lifetime? Yeah, because what is it? Like, a Hobbit doesn't mature until they're 35, this is the in, in terms of Russian dolls of sidebars, we're like at the center now. We had a whole thing going, um, but <laughs> so yeah. And then Mary and Pippin were like the equivalent of mental teenagers. You know, they were probably like forty five years old, but they don't mature all the way. Like they're still. They were in their uh, they were in their twenties. Physically twenties or I mentally twenties. Like physically twenties, oh, so they're, so they're like teenagers, and then. <laughs> Um, but, like, the thing is, is, like, Frodo, I think, in the book starts off at 35, mm-hmm. which is when you're, like, I don't know. And then before he goes on the adventure, he's 50 or 55. Yeah. And then uh, I was trying to, what was I trying to say? Uh, uh, Gandalf, when he leaves to go, like, when he finds the ring, he's like, I got to go real quick. He leaves for he leaves for 17 years. And then he comes back yeah. and he's like, all right, concluded that mission. Here's what's up. That's the ring. You got to give it to me. Yeah, that's what it was. It's like so. Frodo's now like, well, I'm an adult. Yeah, I'm gonna buy a house. <laughs> I've seen I'm you gonna twenty years. People. I'm gonna trick people. Yeah, like <laughs> I can buy a house. So he and pretend I live there, and then actually leave to go destroy a ring of Mordor. That's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyways, he says he doesn't um, use allegory in his writing. Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> I literally love those books. Um, I'm sorry. I'm still Marillion like, tattoo. Okay, oh, you can't see it either. One more. I would. I need to see these Shit. tattoos. One more question. If you were like any Lord of the Rings character, who would you be? <sighs> who do I want to be? This is a who question you I should. Be? Both. Okay. Answer both. And I feel like this is a question you should ask everyone that comes on your podcast. <laughs> Expanded universe too. Silmarillion and the Hobbit and mm-hmm. the letters. Um, shit. Mm-hmm. I think it would be pretty tight to be... I don't know, a Numenorian? Any of them? They seem like they had pretty chill lives. They lived forever. They just ate olives and sailed and stuff. That- <laughs> I'll be Alpharazan, and I'm the responsible one for sinking it in my servitude of Sauron. <laughs> um, I would actually be Sam. To... <laughs> I feel like you give off Sam vibes. I, yeah, I'm pretty homoerotic. There's always, like, the wants... 
and the no i mean they're all kind of neurotic yeah. if you're a hobbit you're neurotic no i said homoerotic um, oh homoerotic <laughs> nice and neurotic homoerotic i love sam <laughs> no i'd want to be tom bombadil but... he's the goal damn it okay that's so the that's my want yeah like since i was a little kid i feel like the whole reason i became a botanist was because of tom bombadil like my mom reading me the hobbit and like lord of the rings when i was a little kid and like growing up with this character that was just like bizarre and immortal who had a relationship with every living organism in this world that he occupied i'm tom bobadil i would be i want to be but i i wouldn't say that i am i don't know who i would actually be i feel like i would honestly be trying to think honestly i think i'd be mary I feel like everybody, I think that's the whole point of those characters is to be like, this is who you'd actually be, person who's self-inserting, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, no, I'm you would like, be a child kind of, of this annoying. world. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like a little annoying and like Smoking a little... weed. A li- yeah, <laughs> a little oblivious. Yeah, I feel like, I guess I'm picturing like who I was, like 19-year-old me, 100% married, just annoying, smoking hella weed, trying to eat carrots. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I guess now I really regimes. have to have. Yeah, that's or like, on but doing it on accident and being like <laughs> scared and confused the whole time. Yeah. You know, I I feel like now as an adult I'd be someone else, but I don't know who I'd be. So I have to go uh, after this. I have to go have an existential crisis and think about that. So uh, I think I heart, would I'm also maybe have a running shot of being Tom Bombadil because there's that passage where they're like the hobbits are asking gandalf like why don't we just give him the ring he's like an all-powerful demigod and then gandalf straight up says oh he'd lose it he doesn't give a shit like he's out to lunch yeah (laughs) i wonder how sad or like kind of fucked up would be if somebody was like i would be Gollum. that'd be sad there's no silence you just silence no response you cut out i don't think i would be Gollum. Oh, I said, how sad and fucked up would it be if, like, somebody was like, oh, I'm Gollum. Like, that's <laughs> not who I want to be, but that's who I am. I wonder what that actually says. It's an aptitude test. Anyways. Anyways. Um, Lust. That was a whole... We were talking about soil. <laughs> uh, that was a whole tangent. Yeah, so the Palouse. So now you know... <laughs> um... The Palouse, honestly, is, in my mind, bag end. Like, it is where the hobbits <laughs> that live. That was an incredible so, merging of running threads of conversation. Thank you. So, to get everyone back on track, <laughs> to get us back on track, picture this. We're in bag end. Um, we're looking for some native plants. You look for the eyebrows. So mm. that's where we left off, I think. Yes. Um, so anyways, the rules for the Palouse, shallow, steep, and rocky. Um, that's how you find the native plant remnant. So there's really a lot of like common grassland species. There's not a lot of plants that are endemic or necessarily unique to the Palouse. Um, there's like a few. Uh, one of the endemic and rare plants of the Palouse is called Spalding's Catchfly, which is Salini Spaldingii. Um, what color is it? It's 
tiny white flowers, but it's like a bit tubular. I have um, a post about it on my Instagram, and because I don't post very much on my plant Instagram, you could find it pretty quickly. At Carrot Warrior. Um, at co- underscore. At underscore. Carrot Warrior underscore. I swear to God, I'm going to start, now that I'm no longer depressed or burnt out from grad school, <laughs> I'm going to start posting more. But, um, yeah, so you can find Spalding Eye there. And I love the name. I think it's such a terrible Latin name. That plant is really cool, though, because it's, like, super sticky. Um, and it can go dormant for, like, up to three years in the soil. And it, like, kind of, like, every year in July or before July, because it blooms in July, but every year before July, it kind of sends a leaf or two up and is like, how's it going out here? <laughs> Testing the How water. How are the vibes? <laughs> yeah. And then if it's shitty, it'll just go back to being dormant and it won't bloom. Um, but if it's good, it'll bloom. So because it is quite particular on when it will bloom um, and it grows in an endangered habitat. It, it is a rare and endangered plant, and it's endemic to the Palouse, so that plant's really cool. I've only seen it blooming once. I have done... I did volunteer to do, like, a a survey of one of the habitats that they had, like, populations that they were replanting and rehabilitating. Um, there are a lot of ticks in the Palouse, mm. so that day I got a tick in my head and didn't know. Whoa, like, all the way so that was your cool. Hair. Yeah, and the thing is, is, like, early season ticks are red, and my hair is red, so I didn't oh, know shit. I was there for, like, two days. And when I got back from field work every Start day, I would... Start getting dizzy. Start telling you would... to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> the tick is Gollum. Um, <laughs> the thing is, is, like, I just had a really bad headache, and then oh I looked, and I was like, holy shit. I had to, like, call uh, my girlfriend at the time, and I was like, you have... She was at work. I was like, you have to leave and come get this tick out of my head right now and she did um but there it was disgusting we lit it on fire um but that was the only tick i got the whole season because every day i would come home from work so we duct taped our legs and the ticks really liked me oh yeah so we duct tape i understand like the pants our pants around our legs (laughs) (laughs) so you what we would duct tape our legs legs every day before field work and just like kind of hop around the field area um but we would duct tape our pants so like when if a tick tried to climb yeah. up your pants it'd get caught on the duct tape um but ticks loved me and so every day i'd have to come home and like get undressed outside and then um walk into my house and do a full tick check because it was so bad especially on me like one day the record was 19 ticks on me none of them bit um that day but they all and everyone was like, I haven't seen a single tick. I haven't gotten a single tick. And I was like, that's fine. I have 19 and counting. But um, anyways, so surveying plants in the Palouse was a bit rough. There was also a little black bear that lived at one of my field sites. But like, he left me alone. I left him alone. We were fine. That was kind of cool. Um, so even though it looks like a non-forested space, there is a lot of like forested wildlife. Like there were lots of great horned owls and hawks and falcons and bears and moose. So many moose. Um, the and, like these different and tons of ticks and a ton of marmots. At one of my steptoe butte had a lot of marmots, and I call those fat boys. With an eye. Um, so, like, every morning it would just be me and the marmots, like, soaking up the sun. And I was like, this is great. 
So what I did is I had four field sites. Um, my my study that will come out, my thesis that's published, and then the paper that will we've submitted will only talk about three field sites because my greenhouse experiment I only did included three of the field sites that I collected soil from. Um, but we, so the Palouse is like pretty understudied in terms of like native plant interactions with our vascular mycorrhizal fungi. So the cheek lab where I did my under, my grad school program with, um, is a soil ecology lab, soil microbial ecology lab, and they focus on AM fungi in the Palouse and other prairie systems. Um, and so we're one of the only labs kind of looking at native plants in the Palouse and AM fungi. Um, I think it's becoming more common now. We're not the only lab, but we're one of the few. Um, and I started my field season like February and I was still trying to develop my question and develop my project. And so I worked with a lot of the land managers. So a lot of my field sites were actually on private land. So most of these, um, native prairie remnants are on farmers, private land. And the farmers that I worked with and a lot of other farmers are huge advocates for trying to, um, preserve and conserve and restore the native prairie. That's pretty incredible um, that you got that level of cooperation from like sci- or farmers that want that to be, you know, that's not the norm. No, it's not the norm. And it's funny too, because I, I feel like I had to balance this in some talks I gave where they were like, well, why, what do we do about the farmers? And I'm like, well, nothing, because they're the ones that are facilitating this research and facilitating, like, trying to keep the Palouse alive. So... Yeah, it's interesting because I've worked with farmers in the past where that was not necessarily the relationship I was able to have with them. But the people that I got to work with in the Palouse were very much like hands on. Like one um, farmer took me out and like for a whole day showed me, drove me around, hiked miles and miles with me and his pregnant wife to show me different remnants on his property. Awesome. Um, And like his family's been there since the 1840s and like he knew the plants better than I did. So it was really good for me to like spend time with these people who grew up there um, and have them like share their knowledge of the land with me and of the plants. Um, And then another farmer, she actually owns a native seed farm and nursery and she grows and sells native seeds. And so like a lot of her farmland is actually dedicated to crops of native plants. Like, so she had this beautiful field of, um, blanket flower, which um, is, what is it, Gallardia? How do you say that? Why am I forgetting? Gallardia? I, I say Gallardia, but Gallard- that's probably, Gallardia. I don't know if that rule applies to Latin. Uh, it's like a red I mean? sunflower Arist- looking thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Aristata. Gallardia, Aristata. Love that. Huge field um, of that. And like had small, small plots. She had like, I think a total of 60 air, uh, acres for yarrow and um lupin fields i don't know just honestly are we both burping i think she said yeah i'm sorry (laughs) i was gonna say i'm not even gonna edit out mine i've had so many i can't even hear you so that's fine (laughs) so i think she had like a total of like 120 acres maybe more i could be wrong dedicated to native plants so anyways i just want to because i talked a lot about how like they came in and like converted the native plants to cropland so i just really want to like make it very clear that i'm not against this agriculture like we need 
this agricultural land. We need these crops. We live off of them. They yeah. produce the majority of our grains um, that we eat in North America. And so I feel like the people that I had the opportunity to work with do a really good job balancing, like, and understanding that as humans, we influence our ecosystems in so many different ways. And, like, it can either be good or bad. But the truth of the matter is, like, we have to fucking eat food, so... Yeah. No, I mean, I'm the poster child of complaining about farmland while then going to Trader Joe's and buying, like, arugula and shit. Like, I was in, um... You want to know? Huh? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I was in the uh, Salinas Valley today. I was up hiking in the hills around it. And it's crazy because this river, it apparently meandered so much that there's just this, like, seemingly unending, just flat basin between the mountains and then, like, the coastal mountains. Uh, And it's just you know, been divvied up, but it's this patchwork quilt of crops. There's not one square inch of coastal prairie or oak woodland or whatever it was. And I get such a coastal elite white suburban boy chipping my shoulder about like, ugh, like, can you look at this shit? But it's like, yeah, no, I eat the food. Like, and if anything, like I have local farms that are feeding me instead of shipping it across the ocean, you know, like I have yeah. probably, they call it America's salad bowl. It's where, uh, not the grapes of wrath. What's the one where they kill the rabbits by mistake? George. Is that not Lenny. the Grapes of Wrath? Is that not? I don't know. I didn't read any of that shit in school. That was a Mice of Men? My- <laughs> yes. Um, that one. That was all set right there. And that's all about like how oh, the promise of agriculture is going to like lead everyone out of the Dark Ages in the 30s. Um, right. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's important to remember that farmers feed you and they're not just destroying the land for the sake of doing it, you know? I guess that's the thing is I had such a, I had a very similar perspective as you, I think, before a lot of things. Like, it was funny because I told you this, um, but I went to Mongolia for like mm-hmm. six weeks and did a study abroad and I did a plant survey and if you guys don't know this, like, if you don't know this already, I fucking love grasslands. Like, <laughs> I love grass. <laughs> and, um, like, I, and I accidentally fell in love with grasslands. Uh, and, you know, when I first enrolled in school, to be honest, I was like, I'm going to be a ranger. I'm going to either be in the desert or in the trees. Like, I thought that I would stay in the, in my home of, like, the Southwest. I thought I'd be among the Red Rocks forever. Um, or, like, you know, in the Sierras or the Rockies or something, you know. Not grasslands, but here I am. Um, and, I don't know, it's interesting. So I went to Mongolia, and they have such a different relationship with the land there, especially where I was, because I was up in northern... the northernmost region of Mongolia, where they're still nomadic and they let their land rest um and so when i came back i was actually angrier about everything and i was just like really pissed off because i was like you know i'm looking out i live in the fucking suburbs now i'm looking out at all these fucking lawns and you know these trees that don't belong here and it's all this area i used to live used to be a sand dune and it it pisses me off but like people have to live somewhere and we have to eat something so how do we do that in a way that doesn't completely destroy the ecosystems that we also rely on to Mm -hmm. live and to be happy i don't know it's hard there's eight billion people there's no good answer like how the fuck do we exist 
I've realized is that like you know like the whole thing with oh capitalism's gonna fall apart soon. Hopefully the socialist utopia will start up. Like that's not gonna lead to that's gonna have just as many problems. Like there's not we're supposed to live in groups of a hundred people max, and not travel outside of like two hundred miles to where we were born in our whole life. So it's that the genie's out of the bottle. So genie's out of the bottle. We can fly. <laughs> We're fucked. <laughs> I know, seriously. We went against God's will and built flying machines. Yeah, if God is real, if he, capital H, Sasquatch, Sasquatch is real. God. Sasquatch God, he's pissed. <laughs> Vengeful. Um, yeah, I mean, hence the biblical floods you're experiencing now. Yeah. That's, I feel so bad, too, because I've been such a little bitch. Like, I went skiing on Friday, <laughs> and it was 22 degrees and snowing, and it was some of the best snow of my life, but I was just like, I'm so cold. No, that's cold. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm totally skin like, now, but I'm from I, Massachusetts, and that's fucking chilly. Yeah, well, I mean, Salt Lake was also very cold, but I, I don't know, I've just... I've just been complaining because I'm like, I miss the sun. Like, this is why I live on the east side of Washington, not the west side. But then I think about every one of my friends that are in California, which are, like, all of my friends. And I'm like, ooh. Maybe I'm... I should be grateful that it's not... It's a good thing. Like, biblical. You know, precipitation here is good. It's just people... You know, I do this horrible thing where I read TikTok comments on, like, videos about the situation in California this winter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all this shit about, oh, they should build more dams. The liberals are letting it go to the ocean. They should stop complaining. It's like, there's such a thing as too much of a good thing. Floods are a thing, too. Also, do they not understand how groundwater recharge works? Yeah. (laughs) Well, all these ancient lakes, ancient, they, they... dredged them in the 40, 1840s like they're not ancient but yeah all these lake basins are filled back up and it's i mean it's a miracle it's a disaster for the farmers uh, but i'm you know kind of blatantly assuming they're all just mega corporations that own that land anyways but the migrant workers are fucked because their work is completely underwater but now there's all instead of everyone rejoicing that these lakes are back temporarily and it's a you know it's a chance to see something that should not be anymore they're all like wondering well, who should get that water like oh there's all this water now like which which farm gets to drain it into their water tanks just let it recharge the central valley of california has sunk 17 feet since we started agriculture on a large scale out there I didn't know that. Yeah. I really need to come to California as like a non-tourist and like botanize and learn This is about the spring. It. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I might go to San Francisco soon, so we'll see. Perfect. Hit me up. Um, and then I could just... The general area. Come out of the city. Somehow I'll make it out of the city, but... um. Yeah. Anyways, I, yeah, it's just interesting, like, watching, so my relationship with, like, farmers and just, like, with land use change in general has has changed a lot in the last few years and, like, my perspective, and I feel like it's interesting, too, because I grew up in a very rural place. I grew up on a place that's literally not on a map, um, which I think is funny. Um, the military Because people are like, no, it's just not on a map. <laughs> Uh, no, it's just small. And so whenever I, people are like, oh, well, where'd you grow up? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you because you're not going to know. You're not even going to be able to, like, you can't you're not verify. going to be able to find it. You're the Bigfoot. Yeah. 
I tried to tell my partner when we, like, first started dating, I was like, oh, this is where I grew up. And then I tried to find it. And I had to, like, go and scroll up from a different town and show him wow. the satellite image. And I was like, this is where I grew up. But What state? Anyways, uh, Utah. I'm from southern Utah. Okay. I'm from a tiny little town outside of St. George. So I grew up in, like, the ecotone of the Mojave and the Great Basin. And... Um, it was amazing. So, like, I don't know. I grew up in a very interesting, like, world, I feel like, where I was homeschooled. And my mom tried to foster this positive relationship for me with the earth and, like, tried to teach me how to be a steward and an environmentalist. And she was an environmentalist, but she, well, she claimed she wasn't. She is. To this day, she'll be like, I'm not, but she is. Um... Just like she says she's not an anarchist, but every time she opens her mouth, I'm like, (laughs) that's anarchy, but (laughs) anyways, so yeah, so I was homeschooled, and so I I feel like I had, I mean, a couple times a week, my mom would take us out into the wilderness, and like, that would be our classroom for the day, and there was this giant cottonwood tree that is still around in this recreation area that is hundreds of years old, and it is so big, it cuts into the rock. Wow. And grows into the rock on this, like, cliff face that you can climb up and climb on into the tree from. And so, like, that's... I don't know. That's how I was raised. But then, at the same time, like, we grew a lot of our own food, and my mom tried to get everything local, and I was in 4-H, and I had horses and chickens and... It was a very rural environment, so I feel like my relationship with ranchers and farmers was cultivated in a positive way growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always tried to be like, well, they're doing good... I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. From some of the other botanists that I know, I feel like I've had a different relationship with ranchers and farmers than some other ones, and I think it's just because of how I grew up. But that doesn't say that, like, when I went, when I started going to school for an environmental science, you know, the science of heartbreak, and I just started kind of getting angry about how we treat the environment and how we treat the ecosystems and how we shift them so drastically that they'll never operate the same again. It's hard to think about. So when I did, started doing my master's program, this was like a whole roundabout to get to this. I was working directly with these farmers. I was working on their land. They were sharing all of their knowledge, their history about the plants, the geology, like everything with me. And I, because they're, because of like the way the world is, it was really hard for me to try to work with the tribes. I tried. I couldn't really get in contact with anybody because I wanted to try to have multiple people that use that land or are a part of that land to get their perspectives on, like, here's my skill set. Like, I study soil. I study fungi. I study plants. Like, what kind of questions are you interested in learning about? What can I, what kind of questions can I answer for you with the skill set that I have? Mm-hmm. And, um, so I got the farmer's perspective, but I still feel like it was good because they originally I wanted to look at Bromus tectorum cheatgrass and um, look at how it affected AM fungi in this ecosystem and how that could, you know, feed back into the native plant systems. This has a question that has been answered many times or asked many times in different ecosystems or similar ecosystems 
which is like how do cheatgrass how does cheatgrass affect the soil biota and how does that feed back into native plants? Most of the time, I feel like you could probably guess the answer to that question, is which bad? is that it's not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not great. So. Um, and sometimes it's neutral. Like, sometimes cheatgrass actually doesn't really do anything to the soil biota. Um, it does often affect soil nutrient cycles. And so I was originally doing a PhD, so I had this big, vast plan, grand idea. Um, and then after working with the farmers, I was able to, like, pick a different plant, which was great. Because they were like, you know, actually, we're not super concerned about cheatgrass. We're more concerned about um, a plant called Ventanata dubia, which... The one common name is African wiregrass. I've never heard it be called that. Most people call it the common name, just Ventanata. And Ventanata is another winter annual, and it's very similar in behavior and aggression as cheatgrass. Um, And it was first introduced in the Pacific Northwest in the 1950s. Um, It's now spread all over the West, including up to BC, and it's considered invasive in Washington, Oregon, California, and I think in BC, Canada. Although it's been found in Utah and Wyoming, it's not considered invasive there yet. Um, and in some regions in the Pacific Northwest, it's actually been shown to start outcompeting against cheatgrass. So it's starting to like replace cheatgrass as the prime suspect. Enemy of my uh, enemy. And an, the enemy of my enemy, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's what I should have titled my paper. <laughs> The enemy of my enemy. So I, I shifted gears and I was originally going to like look at nutrients and do all of this stuff. And I wanted to do a rare plant checklist. But I, I had to scale it back because as most people do, when you get into grad school, you get a little too stoked and a little mm. too eager. Um, and I also switched from a PhD to a master's, which was a great idea. And I am very pleased I did that. Um, so anyways, I just ended up looking at Ventanata and how it and this is like the very first basic study in what is going to be a very long-term project Mm -hmm. and so this is kind of like the initial baseline study which is like ventanata is in this ecosystem so the first question we have to ask is is it even affecting the colonization levels of am fungi so i looked at um soil colonization levels in the rhizosphere of um of Ventanata in, in these native plots and of um, Blue Bunch wheatgrass or, you know, what is it, Pseudorogenaria spicata, which I always say wrong. That's fine. That was my study plant and I still can't say it right. <laughs> I'm not going to try it. Pseudorogenaria spicata. It's hard. Um, or peace spicata. I used common names in my defense because I was like, I cannot keep saying this for 45 minutes. Hell I will yeah. butcher it. So Respect my defense that. had common names. Thank you. <laughs> but so I'm going to call it Blue Bunch Wheatgrass because I, I don't, the, the, the scientific name is not something I feel like taking on today. But anyways, I, I looked at that. I looked at the AM fungi colonization levels in this soil. Um, by running an experiment in the greenhouse for 30 days and all of that stuff. Um, And what I have found so far is that Ventanata did not affect the colonization levels of AIM fungi. It had no effect, Um, which can mean a lot of things. 
it could mean that because Ventanata is technically a newer plant, like I think um, in the Palouse Prairie specifically, it was first recorded only, I want to say 10 years ago. So, but in the regions that I, like the field sites I specifically studied, we actually don't know when Ventanata was introduced. So we don't know when this plant was introduced. So we don't know the time since invasion, which can have a huge impact on its effect on the soil Mm -hmm. biota and the above ground biota. Um, The other thing I found is I looked at native plant species richness and diversity, and I found that Ventanata did not decrease it. It didn't really... um, It did not negatively affect it. It it actually had higher species richness and higher diversity of native plant species in these field sites that were invaded by Ventanata than in sites that were considered native. Because I did these, like, gradients to compare. So I did... That's super interesting. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating, too, because I did plots that were considered native, which had less than 5% Ventanata cover. These transition plots, which were, I think... I can't remember what it was. I'm going to just say greater than 5%. I think it was greater than 10% cover, like between 10 and 30% cover, 20, 30% cover of Ventanata. And then these invaded plots, which were over 30% cover of Ventanata. So I like broke it down into these three categories based off of the cover of Ventanata in these four by four meter plots over three different sites. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so I found no effect at all on mycorrhizae. And then I found no negative effect on species richness and diversity. So I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Is it like a trade-off? Is it, would it be, there's more native annuals in a invaded uh, plot or is it, I'm assuming the idea is that eventually a fire will start and it'll just spread crazy because of the Ventanata. And that'll decrease yeah. species richness eventually. But in the meantime, without, in that vacuum, the absence of fire, it can actually kind of promote other invasives. Is it like, does it choke out things? Is it super wall totally, you know, is it just a carpet of it? Or is it kind of here and there? It depends. So that's actually really interesting because I, I have the data of like annuals versus biannuals. So I could look at that. I ha- That's one thing I didn't look at because I even looked at species riches and cover of total plants. So like not just looking at the native plant, but I also looked at total and it was still the same pattern of like species riches and diversity was actually higher in sites with Ventanata. Wow. And the thing is, is like Ventanata typically likes more, has been shown to be associated with moist soils, more mesic habitats. Um, so actually, I got this wrong. So Ventanata was introduced in the Palouse Prairie specifically in the last 30 years. It was introduced in the PNW in the 1950s. Um, and then it, it has more recently started to spread in the sagebrush steppe. So in these more drier habitats. And that was first recorded 10 years ago. So that is still like 10 to 30 years is still recent invasion. My sites within the Palouse Prairie were not mesic habitats. They were xeric habitats. Mm -hmm. I looked at Blue Bunch communities, which are typically a more xeric community within the Palouse. Our more mesic habitats would be um, habitats that have like Idaho fescue or um, and or um, what's that dang shrub? Snowberry. (laughs) Was it Symphiocarpus? Yeah. and like Rosa Woodsii and stuff. So I didn't go into that habitat. I went into Sierra habitat. So that's the other thing. Because it is a drier habitat, I do think it is a newer invasion. Um, and these are also habitats that are, in the spring, have a lot of biocrust. So 
so one of my lab mates looked at biocrusts and it doesn't, I don't know what the outcome of that is yet because they're still looking at the data, but, um, so I don't know. I don't know, like, in these more mesic habitats, it's a carpa of Ventanata. Like, you go up into the Blue Mountains and you see a patch that Ventanata has invaded and it's a field. It's yeah. just so, like, dense. Um, and Ventanata is a really small plant. It's only about um, 10 centimeters in height on the shoot and then 2 centimeters in depth in the root. So the roots are super shallow. They obviously promote soil erosion because they're so shallow. Um, and it is a winter annual. So I think what's happening is like, especially in these, it's more competitive in these music habitats because it's coming up in the winter and establishing in these spaces and taking up all the resources before the native plants can. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. I wonder if there's some sort of research or, you know, a bell curve out there that shows like new introduction of an invasive plant and it's kind of like everything's fine and, you know, it increases diversity. It's plus one species and then like it does the invasive thing and then it just plummets eventually. Like what is that range of time where it just eventually does, you know, all, you know, invasives eventually if they get bad enough will just bomb an area in terms of diversity. Yeah. That's, I tried so hard to find papers that actually showed a timeline, like, monitoring that, and mm. it was, I couldn't find anything, because I wanted to know, like, what, because people talk about time since invasion as a factor, and they talk about, like, a new invasion versus an old invasion, but I could not find any time periods actually associated with that, so if anybody knows. Yeah. Let me know. Because I couldn't find anything. I tried really hard. And so when I was, like, talking about it and I kept calling it possibly a new invasion, everyone's like, what's that timeline? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. That's just a word we use, and I don't know what that means. Like, for me, that would be in the last 10 years because it's within the last 10 years has been, you know, reported in drier habitats. The other thing is, is, like, shit takes time to affect systems, right? And I, I think the way you described it is really well put and simply put it's just that it's maybe increases it because of the plus one all right you have a master's not me <laughs> i don't know why though <laughs> so i don't know i think that's a really good thought though like it's just a plus one like why does it increase it it's because that is it's an one argument more that like, the pro-invasive people have they're like nothing's invasive that's a you know xenophobic concept that promotes yeah you know uh people trying to do these massive projects that are just going to destroy areas so they can in the name of you know greenwashing and big nature and shit so i kind of was big nature own, so that's one I of was the my reasons own why i they sometimes have a point their research that, if you follow their sources far enough you do get something eventually right but we have like if there is a bell curve if that's the case like there and but then later on we show like after longer time since invasion it has a negative impact. Yeah. But then the argument against that is like what's really negative? Because okay, this is why I fucking deleted TikTok. Because <laughs> I like you know, I talked a lot about my research on there and I talked a lot about my work and whatever. Oh, you're, like, making and, like, them and everything? I had people... you were making content with it. Yeah, I made content. Oh yeah. And um I deleted it because it was so infuriating and, like, frustrating and it made me just feel shitty because a lot of people would get on there with that, like, anti-invasive talk. And, like, let's be 100%, like, let me just get this straight with everyone that, like, I'm pro-open borders. <laughs> like, I am not xenophobic, but, you know, 
being like an invasion ecologist, I feel like people think that I'm saying things that are xenophobic or, you know, racist even. And it's frustrating because that's not... In my mind, when somebody wants to use the argument that, like, there are no such thing as invasive plants, like... Wrong. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I don't know, and maybe you can cut this if this is, like, bad, but I guess what I don't understand is, like, if the same... A lot of the time, the same people are also, like, spouting off how white people were colonizers and invaders of this native land, which we were. We colonized land that was not ours. Yeah. We took it over and, like, took it from people, and we changed it drastically in a way that has been detrimental to the land and to the people. Now, we have an invasive economic system, but, like... Yes. Our, you know, cultures and people and ethnicities don't, aren't inherently destructive, you know? No, but like, so when I, when I think about that, where I'm like, well, we came over and like, from England and all seemed fine. You might have, I'm fucking Irish till I die. Mm. I'm also Irish. Yeah, Sullivan. (laughs) What? (laughs) I have red hair and my last name is Sullivan. (laughs) Um, no, I'm Irish, but, you know. Ancestors We came over on the on the boat <laughs> um <laughs> no but yeah i see, i know what you're saying it's it's not you know what I'm saying, it's though? not a one-to-one like, it's usually you can't the same... equate that with people it's yeah. plants it's different when they're not people I, it, they're not people and the other thing is like i heard arguments where it was like oh my god this was the most if this person hears this i'm gonna not feel that bad but huh. I might be starting shit. I don't know. This was the most... This was from somebody I don't actually know at all. Like, this was just, like, a random person that followed me on TikTok. Um, but their argument, like... They had, like, property. They had bought property in the Palouse. And they were, like, showing these videos of them. And they were like, look at all this mullein. And so stoked about the mullein. Um, which, what is the scientific name for mullein? Do you know? Do you know what mullein is? Thapsis. Yes. Thank you. Um, so in. which is so aggressive. Yeah, verbascum thapsis. So aggressive, so invasive, so weedy. Like, we, we hate this plant. And me and my partner hate this plant because I spent, like, all summer pulling it out of the family cabin's yard. Oh, but trying the to just, people like... love it. Was it one of them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what it was, is they were like, oh, invasive plants aren't real because it's just the government making it up trying to steal our food, like, as our an medicine. excuse to steal our food and medicine. And I'm like, okay, Ventanata is an invasive grass that's just straight up fucking silica. Yeah. Like... You can't eat that. You will rip your intestines. And, like, same with Medusa head. And, like, it is brown. not that common that an invasive plant is actually medicinal. Like, a lot of invasive grasses were just brought over because, one, it was an accident. Two, like, it might have been we thought it was going to be good forage. And, like, then we let our cows eat it and spread it everywhere. And, like, the story of how cheatgrass spread throughout the West is crazy because it was just a fucking accident and it was on trains. But we brought it over because we were like, this might be good for our livestock. Yeah. And then it wasn't. So, yeah, the medicinal people that are, like, invasive plants aren't real, like, that's crazy to me because I'm, like, there are so many wonderful native plants that we could be cultivating and encouraging to grow that are actually medicinal and are actually food. It's like, guess what? There was a whole bunch of people here that knew the medicinal plants that already grew here, and then we killed them all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you assigned a little bit of human worth to this one plant that shouldn't be here anyways, but are you really going to die of pancreatic cancer if you don't have fucking mullen nearby? Yes, I will. (laughs) 
Like Apparently. tinctures. I'm not going to do the voice. I, I mean fucking, tinctures. Yeah, that fucking voice is so stupid and probably very sexist, but... All right. Fucking um, no. I mean, I that's I that's a general. I okay. I'm sorry. It might be, but that for me, that's a the Karen voice. That's a non-gendered voice in yeah. my head, but, but it's fine. No, well, actually, I do associate it with Gwyneth Paltrow, but I don't know. Yeah, she's on her own tip. Um, and if that makes any sense. Anyways, okay. So beyond that, beyond that, I was gonna say we gotta call it because I have a very moldy yeah. leather jacket I found in my closet, and I have to clean that before the rain comes. <laughs> So yeah, and I have a, to go eat dinner. Yeah, but, I have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Jesus. Uh, take care of yourself. Uh, anyways, thanks for listening. I hope that was informative thanks and not talking. at all completely bizarre. Thanks for doing it again on another glorious day in your professional development. Thank you. Thanks for joining my boyhood story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have um, anything you want people to know about that you got coming up? I know you're getting published. You got these, these, all that. Um, Carrot Warrior on yeah, Instagram. I guess, yeah, underscore, underscore Carrot Warrior, underscore. Very important. Um, no, if you are in the Tri-Cities or like Eastern Washington area, I'm going to be giving an in-person talk on April 8th if you, pub- oh, cool. like, if you post this before then. So that'll be fun. That'll be about Leave No Trace and like ethics and how to how and where to view wildflowers in the Columbia Basin. Um, and that's with REI and the Columbia Basin Native Plant Society. So I don't know. I've been giving a lot of talks. So I guess follow me on Instagram because I have been giving a lot of talks. So you can come to my talks either on Zoom or in person. I'll be giving some in-person um, wildflower hikes with the Native Plant Society this summer at a couple different locations, some in the mountains, some in the basin. So just if you want to come on a hike with me, I promise I won't be that unhinged. <laughs> That's it. That's all I have. Cool. Thank you. Um, Yeah, thank you.